Amen. Good stuff. Turn with me this morning to Acts as we continue looking at the church. And this morning we find ourselves on the the postlude of chapter 6 of the disagreements and the fussings over uh, the widows not being taken care of and uh, the men of God equipping other men of God and uh, calling them, uh, laying their hands on them and directing them uh, to be the server that God had called them to be. Now we find ourselves in chapter 7 as the, the, and of course you know, I've mentioned this many times, that when scripture was written it was not divided in chapters. And so 6 flows very fluently into verse uh, chapter 7 and he's speaking about a man by the name of Stephen. Stephen was one of the first deacons. He was one of those server of tables. Uh, he was not a power broker. I don't know where in the world that developed. It's just been in the last hundred years. But Stephen was a man of God. Now I want to ask you something this morning. Have you ever been so excited with news, something had happened in your life, maybe it was a great deal, or you found something that had been lost for a long while, and you were just so excited about something that happened in your life, your, your child uh, was engaged, or your child made the you know, academic honor roll or whatever, that you walk up and someone's talking, and you're so excited, you're willing to interrupt them, you don't even realize that you're interrupting people wanting to tell them the great news you have. You've done that? Thank you, Pam. Thank you. We have one. Do we have two? We have two. Thank you, Nancy. Pretty boys, three. Uh, have you ever just been excited with news you wanted to tell someone? Becky's mother was always so excited about giving gifts, she could not stand to wait. And so if she bought it before midnight on Christmas morning, you would get it before Christmas. She just, you know, you'd be doing something. We'd go there three days before Christmas. I can't stand to wait. She, we're like, no, we want to wait till Christmas. I can't stand it. You've got to open it now. She was so excited about us receiving those gifts. Tonight we're having CPR training. And it's so vitally important. And I want to encourage you. You say, well, you're just all over. Hang with me just a minute. If you have children, grandchildren, a swimming pool, or you go anywhere close to the water, you need to be here tonight. You need to be here tonight. Now, I loved swimming when I was young. And in my teenage years, I, I, I went through every swimming training there was. I did the lifeguarding. I did the full extent to where we went to where we had to jump off the high dive in full clothing and be able to make life preservers out of our clothes. We, we would fail if we touched the, the walls of the pool in an hour. We had to tread water. We had to do all that. I just, I love doing all that. Well, you know what? Uh, when Becky and I first uh, were married, we had a little bit small starter home and uh, there was an above ground swimming pool that came with a house. And she had some family that came over, some cousins down from Rome, and they had two twin boys and a little girl that was a little younger than the boys. And this girl was probably six or seven at the time. And so her dad and I were standing on the deck of this four foot deep pool. Oh, it's just four foot deep. And she had one of those ring donut floats. And she thought it was the greatest thing. She would jump in the middle of that ring and grab old. And then she'd pull herself back, she'd get out, and she'd jump back in. And so I'm standing there leaning up against the handrail, and her daddy's just blah, 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 just talking nonstop. 
He's no more looking at his children in the pool as anything. Uh, I'm hearing him, and I'm hearing wah, 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 because I'm watching his daughter. And she's jumping in, getting out, jumping in, getting out. Full dress, everything. So she jumps off. Last time she jumped off. She jumped right in the middle of the ring. But she went through. And so when she comes back up, her head hits the ring, pushes it off. She can't grab a hold of it. And I saw the look. And before her dad ever even realized it, I pulled my wallet out, set it on the handrail, jumped in the pool, grabbed her, and pulled her out. And he's still, I'm like, dude, be quiet. Your daughter just almost drowned. But even before that, we're, we're at the creek, jumping in the creek. And we didn't have sand alongside like y'all do down here and like we do now and the Ottomaha and other places where you go to the beach at the local creek or river. We didn't have that. We had rocks and hills, but we had places you could jump off and, you know, all this. Well, there's this big rock on Sweetwater Creek and we would go and we had a garden hose tied to a tree and that was the way we pulled ourselves back up the rock. And under the water was a little ledge. And you could swim back up to that ledge and stand about waist deep and grab hold. Well, we're all down there. We're jumping off the rock. And this is a great lesson. So listen real close, young people. So everybody jumped off. I was the next to the last to jump off. Jumped off. Never, never have I ever worried about swimming anywhere. I jump off. I'm doing fine. And as soon as my head pops up out of the water, I look, and another boy, and he's bigger than I am. Now, at the time, I was 6'1", 6'2", about 155, 160 pounds. He was 6'4", about 2'10". He jumps up off in the water. Well, I didn't know he couldn't swim. He had seen us jump and then be able to grab hold of that rope and stand there and he could not stand the thought of everybody else doing it and him standing up there like a scaredy cat because he couldn't swim. So he jumped. And I turned around and that same look was in his eyes. And he's going under, you know, and he's, and so I, I realized what's going on. By this time, everybody else has grabbed the hose and they're pulling themselves back up the rock. And I'm in a fight for my life and his. And so I realized right off the bat, if I keep allowing him to reach out with those gorilla arms to wrap around me, I'm going to drown with him. And so I grabbed my breath, pushed him away from me, went down, got around his knees, and spun him around to where his back was toward me. And I would grab a hole. I came up, get air. And he'd, he'd be floundering around, and I'd go down, and I'd grab him. And I'd tread with all my strength and get his head above water where I knew he could get a good gulp of air, turn loose and try to push him toward the rock, come back up and scream. He's really drowning. Somebody help me. All this is happening in split seconds. And by the time it was all over, a couple up more had jumped in. I'd got him over to the ledge. Our knuckles were just bloody and torn up where we had been grabbing for that garden hose against that rock. But ultimately, it's what saved him. is getting him to the ledge, getting him to the rock. Tonight we're going to have CPR, and you never know what's going to happen. But I want to tell you something today. Here's something you do know. Every person without Christ that dies will go to a sinner's hell. And if you're born again by the blood of Jesus Christ, you know where the rock is. You know where the lifeline is. And you've got the greatest story ever told. Imagine coming tonight and having the training. You learn how many times to do the compression to every breath. And you say, well, I did it 20 years ago. Listen, they've changed. You need to come tonight. We may even be able to go through some of the AED. That box over there is real exciting to look at unless you don't have a clue what to do. It's really simple if you get just a little bit of instruction. Well, if you're born again, you have all the tools you'll ever need 
to tell somebody about Jesus Christ. Imagine coming to all this training tonight and having the opportunity and you see those eyes as they go under and you just keep going. Say, ah, you know, they're just faking it. And they go under for the last time. Do you know you could be prosecuted for that? For the failure to render aid? Did you know that? Well, what will we face when we stand before God with all of our doctrinal excuses and all of our feeble attempts of saying, I can't do it. Listen, I want to tell you something. Moses tried that and failed. Oh, but I, God, I can't really, really talk very well. I got a bad stutter. God said, who made your mouth, Moses? Now look with me in Acts chapter 7. We're talking about the first martyr of the church. The deacon, not the pastor, not the shepherd, the deacon Stephen. And we start by seeing a verse in chapter 6 where it said, For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face, the face of Stephen, as it had been the face of an angel. Then we pick up in verse 54. And when they had heard him preach, when they heard him declare Jesus and the gospel, they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he being full of the Holy Ghost looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of God standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. They weren't calling on God. Stephen was. And he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Didn't say he died. I love, I wish I'd come up with it, but it, it's been told way before my time that they didn't really stone him to death, they just rocked him to sleep. Well, the truth is, and I failed to apparently change the title of the message on my PowerPoint. Last week was growing pains. Today is the witness of the church. The witness of the church. I want you to look, first of all, at being a witness. Being a witness for Christ can be costly. We need to, the Bible says, a builder must count the cost. Must count the cost. You know, every time when I was building that someone stiffed me, it was always the people who said, oh, money's no object. Yeah, it wasn't no object not to pay me. It was the people that really was very precise, got everything down, pinpointed, and, and contractual, everything was good, that they would take care of what they knew they needed to take care of. Being a witness for Christ can be costly. It says very clearly in verse 59 that they stoned Stephen. They killed him. But he, being just the first of the church, we would see throughout the last 2,000 years, even Tertullian said, the blood of martyrs is seed. I am teaching a missions practicum for some of the students that went with us to Guatemala for Trip McConnell. And two books that I'm having them read on Mission with God by Blackaby and Jungle Pilot by the wife of Nate Saint. You say, who is Nate Saint? 
It's a good question. Some of you know. His counterpart is more famous. A man by the name of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot issued the words that is still to this day my favorite quote. He is not a fool to give up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. If you've ever read anything by Elizabeth Elliot, was Jim's wife. You see, Jim Elliot, Nate Saint, and three other believers had been reaching out to the Aka Indians in Ecuador. They had flown into this very remote place where they literally flew in on Ecuador's Otamaha River and landed on a sandbar. And the Indians came out. They know who killed them later because they had the gifts that Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and the other men had brought to give these Indians to share them with them in the love of Christ. January 8th, 1956, those five gave their lives for Christ. On February 5th, 1977, Ugandan Archbishop Janani Luum was martyred for standing up to Idi Amin. If you know anything about history, you'll know he's one of the most vicious and wicked dictators of the 20th century. He thought himself to be some kind of great, uh, legendary, reincarnated, reincarnated king of Scotland. He was also a cannibal. The man was crazy. And when this archbishop stood up to him, he had been ordered to stop preaching by Idi Amin, but refused to be silenced. And so they killed him. Even today, Southern Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, many around the globe are laying their lives on the line. And some are even dying for the cause of Christ. I remember not too many years ago where Southern Baptist missionaries, nurses in the Philippines were attacked by Muslims and killed for their faith. We have seen it happen to the Christians in Iraq. We've seen it happen to Christians in Pakistan. We've seen it happen all around the globe. Being a witness for Christ can be costly. And so we see the price we pay cannot be compared to the price that Christ paid for our sins. He said, I don't know if I can give my life. Listen to what he said in verse 53. He tells us, who have received... Well, let's back up and look at verse 22. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? Stephen just told them the truth. Listen, what, what did they do to Jeremiah? Y'all remember what they did to Jeremiah? Remember when they put him down in the dungeon and he sunk? They had to tie a sheet around him to pull him up out? What did they do to Isaiah? Huh? Cut him in half. I mean, we could go on and on and on about the prophets, right? how they killed the prophets. They killed the prophets. Remember Saul, man, he just went wholesale slaughter on them. And it's still happening today. Well, they start using all these excuses. He said, I want to, I want to ask you something. Which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one. What did Isaiah say? Isaiah told us in chapter 7, he told us in chapter 9 of the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the prince of peace. He told us of the virgin birth, chapter 7, verse 14. He told us of the vicarious death and sacrifice the Lamb of God would pay in chapter 53. Is that not right? And what did he get for pro prophesying of the coming Messiah? They killed him. They killed him. He said... Who have received the law? These people who claim all this, they received the law by the dispensation of angels. 
and they have not kept it. I'm going to tell you something. Coming to church and carrying a Bible doesn't make you a sold out witness for God any more than walking through your garage makes you a car. You hear what I'm saying? Not even the most religious people can keep the law. We are all sinners in the hands of God. There is no, no, absolutely no righteousness in and of ourselves. It is all because of Him. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. You know who else said that? Pretty sure it's Isaiah. Makes you want to go home and study the book of Isaiah, doesn't it? And I'm going to tell you something. If we can be good in the least little bit, why did Jesus go through Isaiah 53? Why? Why did he have to bear our stripes? Why did he have to be pierced? Why did a thorn, crown of thorns have to be thrust upon his brow? Because you and I are wretched, vile sinners who can do no good. None. There is no, none righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We need to understand that Jesus Christ came to this earth, prophesied of old. Even though his prophets were killed, he still stayed the course, faithful to the Father, surrendered his will, made lower than the angels, lived without sin, died on the cross. And the Bible says very clearly in Romans chapter 10 that if we believe in Him, we believe on Him with all of our heart and confess our sins. You can't come bebopping down an aisle, sign a card, popping gum, and say, I want to go to heaven, I don't want to go to hell. Yeah, I believe all about Jesus, but you fail to say I am such a wretched sinner I deserve hell then you just got a taste of religion you didn't get Jesus so why do people come to church for a little while and they claim this I don't tell you that is a question I will never fully understand until I get to glory except for two things people say oh you Baptists y'all think y'all can just once saved always saved so y'all just live any way you want I'm going to tell you something the Baptists who believe that may be Baptists in their uh, church they go to, but they've never become a Christian in their heart. Because if you, got, if you claim to be saved so you can sin, then you never, got, you never got the real thing. Any amens right there? Real believers want to please the Father. I'm going to tell you something. You won't have to beg people who love Jesus, who understands what He gave for them. You won't have to beg them to come to church. Now, we all fail even after we're saved. We don't read the Bible enough. We don't pray enough. We get lackadaisical and we don't come to Sunday school. Listen, preachers should not have to spend one second begging the church to be the church. You know why we have Sunday school? Because God's Word said to disciple. That's His great commission. To teach the Word of God. Walked by the kids' classes this morning. They're in there singing hymns and they're learning the Word of God. Because I'm going to tell you something. We don't teach them. The world will. What do you see today? Rainbows. And it's not from Genesis chapter 6. They have recreated, retrained, and everything else. But I'm going to tell you something. There's never, ever, ever, never, never, ever been one archaeological find that's outside a male or female gender. You can say whatever you want, but science is still science. And science doesn't disprove God. It only backs up what God already is. But God don't need science. God's above science. Remember Jesus walked on the water. Science says you sink. Jesus said, I don't sink, I'm God. Amen? They saw him on the Mount of Pentecost for a second, and then all of a sudden, he's gone. They said, hey, why are y'all standing here gazing up? Do you not understand? He's above creation. He is the creator. But the same one you look at, he's coming the same way. Amen? Man. 
We ought to be excited about Jesus. We shouldn't have to beg believers to tell. But only 2% of all Southern Baptists have ever shared their faith with someone personally. 2%. All you that went to Guatemala, raise your hand. Did it not light your fire when you walked in that class and saw kids on their knees praying to receive Christ? Pleading for the Lord to forgive them of their sins and change them? See high schoolers giving their life to the Lord in complete and total surrender? The price we pay cannot be compared to the price Jesus paid. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He has washed it white as snow. Not only do we see the price we pay cannot be compared to the price He paid, God will always, always, always reward our witness. Now, I've never seen this. Olin, this blew my mind this week. Some of you may have caught it when I read this a while ago. Now it just stands out. I ain't never seen it. Where is Jesus at right now? What, all right, so what's he doing? Making intercession, but where does it say that physically his posture, what's he doing? It says he's sitting at the right hand of the Father everywhere we read. Look right here. When Stephen looks up to glory and they're stoning him to death, they think, oh, we're winning, we're winning. Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing. <sighs> standing on the right hand of God. I'm going to tell you something. I got them Holy Ghost chills right about now. There is nothing better. Church, listen to me. You can write down a, an obituary that talks about all the things you accomplished here on this earth. You can talk about all the land you bought and all the vacations and all the trips you went on and how much you love fishing and your puppy dog. But I'm going to tell you, the greatest thing you can ever do, the greatest thing is know when you close your eyes on this side, you'll open your eyes before a loving God and hear these words, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant not going to be standing at the gate. He had to get in the same way you and I do. Now you can tell all the funny jokes and they are funny. Ha -ha. Put Peter up at the gate. That's fine. But truth be told, that ain't the way it works. God always rewards. Do you understand what went on? Jesus is sitting right here and the Father's sitting there. And when Stephen looked, heaven opened and Jesus stood up to greet him coming. The Son of God stood up for Stephen. Would he stand up for you? Are we living a life that pleasing to a heavenly Father? I mean, oh man, do you understand? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, and though it broke God's heart that they were mistreating his servant Stephen, this deacon being so faithful in preaching the gospel without any, any kind of addition to it, just simply proclaiming Jesus. It broke God's heart he would suffer, but it so thrilled him to death that he knew his eternal existence. He stood up. That overwhelms me. I'm just, I, I'm just, I'm in awe. You see, the thing about it is, Stephen understood spiritual warfare. He understood the whole idea of spiritual warfare. We, we don't. We, we get it all jacked up. He said back in chapter 6, verse 8, and Stephen, full of faith and power. What kind of power? Now, I like guns as much as anybody, but guns won't work against Satan unless Satan's flying the ISIS flag and we need to load up all the planes and tanks and just deal, deal with business. 
But the truth is, it says he was full of faith and power. And he did great wonders and miracles among the people. Look at verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. He was not doing it in and of himself. I'll tell you, the problem is when we start watering it down and we just try to be so inclusive that we have belittled and denigrated the truth. You know how you get somebody saved? They've got to realize they're lost. You know, I've never jumped in for, to help somebody in a swimming pool. It's just, you know, they're out there having a good time. They're floating, backstroking. I just run, jump on top of them. Oh, you need safe? No, I'm swimming. Leave me alone. Never done that. When I saw the eyes, the eyes told the story. They couldn't say anything. I'm going to tell you, they're walking all around us every day, and they're not hollering out, please come tell me about Jesus. But if you look into their eyes, they're saying, I am so empty. I need something. God will always reward our witness. And Stephen understood that, and he understood the spiritual warfare so much. Listen, they could attack his flesh, but they could not defeat the spirit and the truth. Look, look with me in Ephesians chapter 6. He tells us about that spiritual warfare, doesn't he? This is exactly the story of Stephen. is exactly what Paul was talking about because he had, had a front row seat, hadn't he? Do y'all understand because of Stephen's faithfulness, Saul heard the gospel? Do y'all understand that? You don't? And from Romans to, to what I believe Hebrews, that man named Saul who killed Christians that stood there with the coats, and he was the coat check man. He was kind of the orchestra, orchestrator of this stoning because he was a Pharisee and a scribe and all this. He stood there and empowered these men, cheering them on, justifying their actions against Stephen would be the man Jesus came to on the road to Damascus. It's why do you keep betting? beating your head against the wall, kicking, kicking against the pricks. And Saul said, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus saved a murderer, a Christian killer, a church wrecker. And he wrote to the church at Ephesus in chapter 6. He said in verse 10, My brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be, be able to stand against the craftiness or the wiles of the devil. Listen to verse 12. For we wrestle... I'm country. Did y'all hear that? Boy, I'm country. For we wrestle. No, we wrestle. If you ever been in it, Jacob didn't wrestle. He wrestled with the angel of the Lord. Dustin, Dusty Rhodes didn't wrestle. Ric Flair didn't wrestle. They wrestled. And when we get out there in it, listen, when it's serious and it's heavy, that, hey, we're wrestling. But we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. See, we personalize sin. We get mad at somebody and we hold a grudge. Listen, no, it's Satan. Satan is after you. Satan's after your children. Satan's after your family. Satan's after your church. He's after your pastor. That's... He said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Stephen understood that. But hear what he said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Matthew 10, verse 28. Jesus said, and fear not. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We need to understand who we're fighting against. Stephen understood, and he understood. They may stone him to death, but he was on the winning side. Amen? And then we ought to recognize witnessing opportunities.
recognize witnessing opportunities. Stephen was faithful. Can you imagine if Stephen would have walked away from this? How many times would Stephen get an audience with a room full of such prominent unbelievers? You say, yeah, and they killed him. Yeah, and Saul got saved after the planting of the gospel. The seed was planted. Someone watered, and Jesus gave the increase. Amen? He took full advantage of the situation. Many of you have family members or have friends or someone who's in a cult. And you've shared Christ with them. I read yesterday of a man who's a pastor, a preacher, who asked prayer on a social media platform who had spent the weekend with his mother who was still a Jehovah's Witness. He said, my mother, I had the privilege of spending the weekend with her and she heard the gospel. She did not trust Jesus as her Lord and Savior. She, she did not deny the falsehoods of her, of her doctrine. But keep praying the seed was planted. Church, we're not called to cook and clean the fish. We're just called to fish. It's not about success in our eyes. It's about being faithful. And let me remind those that went on the mission trip, whether 300-something professed Christ or none, if we were faithful and did what God wanted, then the trip was a success. Have I failed to preach the gospel if no one ever comes to the altar? Now, I may leave with a heavy heart or something, but I'm, I'm, I'm finally maturing enough to know that, hey, if no one comes to this altar, does not mean I failed. Does not mean I didn't preach the gospel. Doesn't mean I didn't share. I've had people, I asked one not too long ago, hey, do you know Jesus? Yes, I know Jesus. Don't you want to place your faith and trust in Jesus? Not right now. What more could I have done right there? Nothing. Because I can't make them. And I can't save them. I couldn't save my own children. But you know what? When I was seven years old, I couldn't even save myself. It was the blood of Jesus. And it's got to be the blood of Jesus. But here's the deal. Stephen was faithful. He was faithful with this group. What if Paul had walked away from the Oropagus? He, he could have walked by, you remember in Acts chapter 17 at Mars Hill? And he, there's a monument there and it says to the unknown God. And they're all out there doing their yoga and they're doing their alms and all that kind of stuff and they're worshiping the unknown God and all the gods, the pantheism and panantheism, everything's God and anything's God and we're all God and there is God and no God and everything else. Paul could have shook his head and thought, what a bunch of idiots. They won't do any good to share anything with them. And he could have said, roll on, you bunch of morons. And went on, said, I got to get to church. But that's not what he did. The apostle Paul walked up and said, what y'all do? He just got in amongst them. He just waited up in there. He said, what y'all do? Oh, we're worshiping. Really? What's the deal? Well, you don't see our monument? Now, we're, we're Greeks. We're open-minded. Y'all ever heard that? Y'all bunch of Christians are closed-minded. You need to open your mind. You need to understand there's some very, very prominent people that some of us have listened to and followed in past years that have gone off their rocker in the last few months who says that we should open our mind and be more inclusive. That God understands. I'll tell you what God understands. God understands that sin was brought on by disobedience and that it kills all of us and He sent His Son and there is no other way and God's not changing. God's not going to change just because you're a famous woman teacher. God's not going to change because you're a president of a seminary. God's not going to change because you're the United States of America and you're a very famous artist or musician and everybody ought to just follow what you say. 
Hebrews 13, I'm pretty sure still says Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And whatever the scheme and lie of Satan does not matter. He's still the same. Listen, Stephen was faithful. Paul was faithful. And he said, I tell you what, y'all see that monument? I, I hear what you're doing. And I understand all that open-mindedness. I've studied under Gamaliel. I've done all that stuff. He said, I got great news. Well, what is it? Y'all want to know who that God is? I'm going to tell you. And he started preaching Jesus to them. And no doubt many were saved because we see many churches pop up. You know, Decapolis was an area of 10, 10 cities and churches began to spread all over the place. Why? Because Stephen in his faithfulness, number one, was intentional. We at Eastside Baptist Church must be intentional. And when I say intentional, I mean we need to pray seeking God's face and expect God to use us. If you pray today, God use me to share my faith with somebody, then we ought to expect it's going to happen. We must be intentional about sharing the gospel with Jesus Christ. Every day you're on mission. Every day. Every single day. You're on mission if you're faithful to the call. Don't be AWOL. Expect God to use you. Be intentional about your life. Be intentional. Hey, what you got to do this week? Oh, it's just a standard week. My mama asked me that every, every Sunday night. What you got to do this week? Just regular stuff? I said, yeah, just regular stuff. Prepare a message. Stuff. I said, but stuff pops up along the way. But you know what? I'm going to go eat somewhere sometime during the week. I'm going to eat at Dairy Queen or I'm going to eat at Hootie's, or I'm going to eat at Harry's, or I'm gonna, and I'm going to see somebody. I may go by the police department. I may go by the fire department. I, may, I never know. Yesterday, I was in town, and when I left town, all of a sudden, all these uh, flashing light volunteer firefighters started coming by me, and then a Claxton police officer come flying by me. Well, we was past Hagen, almost to Belleville. I was right at turning in down Lake Strickland. I said, well, if Claxton police going out there, and all these other firefighters, I, I'm going to go just see what's going on as chaplain. Mate, I, you know, I have no earthly idea what's happening. Honestly, you want me to tell you what I thought? I said, Lord, please don't let this be a domestic. Don't let this be, so, it's middle of the day. It's not probably going to be some fire. Turned out it was an air conditioning unit. It wasn't no big deal. But you've got to expect that any moment, God may be using that moment for you to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Expect and be intentional. Be relational. Stephen was relational. He came in. He talked about them as a people sharing the love of Jesus Christ with these people. He engaged them personally. He didn't stay in some room once a month. So our job is just take care of building and let the preacher tell everybody. Listen, that's not the way it works. It's just not the way it was designed. Men, if you're ordained as a deacon, God's called you to proclaim the gospel. If I got sick at 9.51 on a Sunday morning, biblically and according to our bylaws, every single one of you must be ready to stand in that pulpit and proclaim the gospel. Not say, well, the preacher's not here. Let's sing a few more songs. Uh, I, read, I read a verse the other day. I'm going to read this and then we'll just be dismissed. No. It's not what Stephen did. Stephen said, let me tell you about Jesus. And if you're saved, deacons, and I believe you are, then you'll know how to tell it because that's what Paul told. Told him what God had done in his life. We must be relational. Paul said, I've become all things to all men that by all means, by all means some might be saved. Relate. Some of us don't want to relate. We want to live in our little bubble. We don't want nobody to get inside our little bubble. We don't want nobody to interfere with anything we do. And if so, then we just become mean and bitter and sarcastic and leave me alone, let me live my own life, blah, blah. God didn't call you to live your own life. God, you, God called you to live His. He said, deny self and follow Him. Deny yourself. College students, what's the name of the book we're studying? 
Absolute surrender. We started this morning going through Andrew Murray's book, Absolute Surrender. We've got an interactive virtual small group class because many are coming and going and they'll be back at college, but you know what? This week it blew up on our, on our chat page and man, they're reading the book and they're responding to it and, and, and it's so engaging to have them reading the scripture, reading this book and sharing what God is showing them and how they should surrender their all to the Lord. It's meeting, listen, I'm not in college. I'm not 21 years old, but I can relate to them because I've been through some of that stuff. I've been through the same issues that they're facing in life. Senior adults, did y'all have fun Thursday night? If you didn't, your own fault. It's your own fault for not coming. Man, we have a low country bowl. What's wrong with you not coming? Good grief. We eat better than any senior adult I've ever seen. You say, you go to the senior adult? Yeah. If you can play on the senior adult men's champions golf tour at 50 years old, then I can eat with senior adults after 50. And they eat better than any other group in the church. It's just truth. Y'all with me? Amen. And I can relate. I mean, I'm not as old as Jerry Wiggins. But it's just a couple months I will be. What are you laughing at, Steve Smith? You ain't far behind us. We relate. We can talk fishing. We can talk golf. Me and Mike like to talk about golf and stuff. Somebody, we can talk about football. We can talk about basketball. We can talk about baseball. I've learned just enough that I can, Ray, don't completely think I'm a complete idiot when I try to talk farming with him about something. I'm going to tell you something. If y'all think farming is for country bumpkins that don't know anything, they're like the rocket scientists of the world. They really are. All the stuff from algicides and fungicides and insecticides and all the other stuff and when to do it and how to do it. And some things is just full moon. Listen, it's so much more scientific. Relate to people where they're at because there's lost farmers in Evans County. There's lost coaches in Evans County. There's lost doctors. There's lost teachers. There's lost students. It must be a concerted effort. You know what happened when Paul did that in chapter 17? Him and the rest of them, they turned the world upside down because they were intentional. They expected God to move. They were relational. They engaged the culture. And then they were spiritual. They obeyed. What did he say in Acts 1.8? What's the first word? Two letters. G-O. Go. Go. What happened? Go. Yeah, but go. We don't have the money. Go. 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 Just go. Glenda, do you have any idea what to expect? But God said what? Go. And she went. And God blew all of our minds. We must obey. Y'all say, you keep talking about Guatemala. I'm going to keep talking about it until we go back and y'all go with us. They had a big evangelism service in the church we're partnering with yesterday. It's unbelievable what God is doing. Listen, the, duke, the deacon's duty within the church seems pretty clear. They were selected by the congregation and appointed by the pastor to take care of the widow's food distribution. This stopped the murmuring. But it would seem as though they had a responsibility out, uh, outside the church as well. Stephen and Philip were both vibrant witnesses for Christ. They took advantage of every opportunity to be the most for Christ. Can we say the same? And then, listen, I want to challenge you to make the most of every opportunity to be a witness for Christ. I want to help train every one of us to be the best. I don't have to train you how to be saved. I mean, you know, if you're born again, you know what God did. 
And the truth is, that's all you got to do is tell people what Jesus did for you. Don't, have, don't feel like you got to match your testimony to someone else's. Everyone's testimony is a DNA stamp between you and God. It's your testimony, no one else. And if you don't have one, it's time to get one. Because listen, witnessing of Christ's life-changing grace is worth any great consequence or minor inconvenience it may bring. The last thing I want to share with you is Christ's witnesses are willing to die for the gospel. Religionists are willing to kill for theirs, for their traditions. It must always be transformation over tradition. In one place, Jesus said in Matthew that we have taught traditions for doctrine. I grew up in a traditional South, independent-minded, Southern Baptist church that did things a certain way, and if it wasn't, then you weren't right with God. They didn't believe in none of that ball playing at church. You play ball at home. I mean, y'all remember those days? Well, that's the kind of church I used to grew up in. It's a lot like Stephen versus the Pharisees. Sometimes we get very pharisaical about the way we should do things. Now, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure. Now, I don't even, I don't even ask, but our deacons... They all, when we have the Lord's Supper, I don't have to ask them. They feel the responsibility to try to dress up. But I think some of them, every once in a while, there's been one or two that it just they let it slip their mind. Hey, I got a slippery mind too. And you can ask all of them, did I say, no, y'all can't serve? I said, no, you're going to sit down and help serve. Big deal. Come on. We, you know, we all have those slippages. We all forget some things. It's transformation over tradition. I don't expect everybody because I wear a suit and tie on Sunday morning, everybody else to have to. People say, why do you still do that? Everybody, I don't care what everybody else does. I got suits. I got ties. I make it look good. I'm going to keep wearing it. I'm just kidding about that one part. You'll just have to figure out which part I was kidding about. The juxtaposition of actions when you put Stephen's demeanor against the Pharisees, when you put them right beside each other, the two different types of men, the Pharisees were motivated by their love of tradition over everything else. They would think nothing of killing a man who would change them or their traditions. I'm going to tell you something. Man's traditions will try to stop the church's progress. We have never done it like that. We've always done it this way. Well, we can't do this. Do y'all understand? And I intend for it not to be forever. Matter of fact, not that much longer. But it's a very rare case where a Baptist church would be willing and understand that it's not about what kind of building, it's about the people in it, but willing to meet as long as we have in a gym. This is not a church building, it's a gym. But it's a church when you're in it. Right? If we set up a tent, a tabernacle out there, and all of us went out there and sang spiritual songs and preached to God, then the church is out there. It's where the church, it's where we are. And we need to understand, it's not about the silly Silly ideas. Do you understand the church in the 19th century Europe? Now, this may blow your mind, so y'all want you to buckle up for this. The 19th century church in Europe almost imploded over hymns. Not the failure to sing them, but when they started singing them. Hymn singers were seen as the newcomers to the church. They were the skinny jean wearers of the day. And their songs were considered worldly and merely a passing fad. Many did not want to give up their tradition of singing metered psalms. The Gregarian chants of the day. They also hated the fact that many hymns were accompanied by the organ. 
You know, I remember high church when you walk in, the first thing you heard was a hang, 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 you know, the organ playing. Do you know what they called them? Anybody have an idea what they called churches that had the organ? They said they sounded like cats screeching. They called them cat gut churches. They couldn't stand it. The Puritans, listen to this, the Puritans would not allow the new translation, that modern translation of the King James Version on the Mayflower because their beloved Geneva translation was prominent in their faith and tradition. That'll make you think, won't it? We need to be willing to live or die for the gospel but not willing to allow people to die and even to the point of killing them for our traditions. From the Spanish... I, you know, I, I looked up modern-day martyrs, and I shared a few with you. They're dying every day for the cause of Christ. Many Catholics, have, Roman Catholics, have given their life. One, uh, several... I, I read the one in Uganda, and there's been others, but... There was a man in Pakistan. He was the only Christian in government. And they, they, he fought the blasphemer law. And they killed him over it. Because he was a believer. They killed Anabaptist for believing in believer's baptism and that alone. But as many, and, and I don't mean this to be ugly, but the truth is, that way, I mean, before and after the, the Reformation, Roman Catholics were killing believers who didn't think like them wholesale. Look at the Spanish Inquisition. Look at other places. The whole Reformation took place because of traditions of the church, the bulls of the Pope, and in the same regard as Scripture, that, that whatever the Pope said was in equality to God's holy word and, and the selling of relics and the selling of indulgences. That is why sola scriptura was the cry of the reformers. It's only the word of God, not what man thinks. I'll read you one last story and then close. Have you ever heard of the Boxer Rebellion in China? It began in 1898 and lasted for about three years. 32,000 Chinese Christians were murdered. Over 10,000 a year. 236 missionaries were murdered. 53 of them children. CIM missionaries Stuart and Kate McKee with daughter Alice were three of them. A boxer mob, and by the way, the Boxer Rebellion started because of famine, drought, and pestilence. And the Chinese in their tradition blamed Christians for it happening. It's because of you Christians this stuff has happened. The Boxer mob approached the house of the McKees, in which Kate had just given birth to their second child. When Stuart went outside to plead for their lives, he was hacked to death by machetes. The house was then set on fire, Kate, and the newborn perished. Little Alice escaped and hid in the cow shed in the morning. The mob discovered the four-year-old and killed her too. So why would you tell us that? Because listen, there's people who are giving their lives for Christ. We ought to be willing to live for Him. Matt, if you'll come. We must be willing to witness for Christ regardless of the persecution or consequences. Christ may not ask you to die for Him, but He has surely told us to live for Him. Do you know Him? If so, to whom have you shared your faith with? Ask yourself, would Jesus stand up for me when I came into glory? Listen, we die for the gospel. We are flexible with our traditions. 
I will prefer my brother over myself and surrender my preferences in non-essential matters as long as I have an opportunity to look them in the eyes. And every person I meet be able to look them in the eyes and say, Jesus died for you. If you've never shared your faith, it's time. If a deacon named Stephen can do it, you can do it. If you've been saved, the Holy Spirit's within you. You remember what he said? Full of the Holy Spirit and power. He said, if you wait on me, told the disciples, he said, you will receive power. Maybe it's time you come and say, Lord, send the power just now that we may go and lead others to Christ. Stand. If you need to trust Jesus as your Savior, come. If you need to pray, be baptized, whatever it is, come to Jesus this morning. Surrender to Him, your witness. When the music fades and all is stripped away.